Hello, and welcome to Bad Axe Podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Blinka, and this is our co-host... Hi, I'm Aaron. The case we're doing today is super special. It's about a little girl who is a member of the Dainé, also known as the Navajo Nation. Dainé means the people, and it's how the nation refers to themselves. I wanted to do this story because I really connected with the little girl at its center. It's not common that a victim from a marginalized community gets as much news coverage as Ashlyn Mike, the girl we're talking about today. However, that will hopefully change as more people become aware of the problems in our society. All victims deserve justice and to have their stories told. Yeah, absolutely. Today, we're in New Mexico on the Navajo Nation Reservation, which is located in the northwestern portion of the state of New Mexico, but also spreads into Arizona and Utah. Actually, the majority of the Navajo Nation is in Arizona, but there's a sizable portion in the top corner of the state of New Mexico. The land there is arid desert soil adorned with plants that thrive in the dry, hot environment. Rock formations and monoliths rise out of the desert ground, forming scenic terrain. Some of the massive formations are sacred. Our case occurs on May 2, 2016. 11-year-old Ashlyn Mike had just gotten off the school bus with her 9-year-old brother, Ian, and her 12-year-old sister, Gracelyn. All three children rode the bus home from school every day. Ashlyn was a shy, happy girl whose friends and family described as smart and kind. She was all also quite the growing artist and played the xylophone. She sounds like a nice kid. She does sound like a nice kid. I saw some of her drawings on different news reports and about her and like different memorial things that have been produced about her. And she was a really good artist, especially for being 11 years old. It looked like she did some like landscape type things. But I'm sure she did other stuff as well. And I don't know, I just kind of connected with that part of it because as you know, I'm really into art. Yes, you are. That, I bet she could have done some really nice landscapes. I bet you there's a lot of good landscapes to paint around mm-hmm. Around that area. There really are. Like, I personally, and I know I've talked about this before, am really enchanted with, like, the whole Southwestern um, aesthetic especially like nature aesthetic of like mountains and plateaus and cacti and the desert grass looking stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I'm all about it. And like the pictures of New Mexico are beautiful. So I don't have to tell you guys that though. I'm sure you've seen. Yeah, definitely. All right. The kids got off the bus at a stop near Shiprock Pinnacle, also called Shiprock Peak in the New Mexico desert. Now Shiprock Pinnacle is a large volcanic formation that's sacred to the Navajo Nation. In their language, the name for the peak translates to rock with wings. That's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. Now, if you're wondering how it got the name Shiprock, apparently the um, colonialists viewed it as looking like a ship, like a clipper ship. I don't see the ship. To me, it looks like the ivory tower in the never-ending story. Like, legit, <laughs> it looks just like it, but like kind of reddish-brown. Yeah. If you have never seen Shiprock Peak or Shiprock Pinnacle, you should definitely look it up. It's majestic. I looked at so many pictures of this thing. It is absolutely, I, it's amazing. Yeah, that sounds beautiful. And as I may have mentioned already, Shiprock Peak is sacred to the Navajo, and I totally understand why. It just looks like, I want to say like a cathedral. Obviously, you know, I don't go to the cathedrals necessarily, but like, that's what it kind of looks like, like nature's cathedral. It's gorgeous. Yeah, that, that sounds really gorgeous. Yeah. So on that day, Ashlyn and Ian lingered at the bus stop while their sister started on her way home. They started playing with the other kids who lived in their neighborhood. Ashlyn and Ian enjoyed playing in the canal near their bus stop. And really, what's the harm in playing? Normally, I would say nothing. But since we're recording this episode, I'm going to guess there's some kind of harm. Definitely. Definitely. 
Now, the kids were likely looking forward to the upcoming summer vacation. After it all, it is May. However, they had no way of knowing that a predator waited for them. However, their sister Gracelyn went ahead and started off for their home in Lower Fruitland. But she hadn't gone far before someone stopped her. 27-year-old Tom Begay Jr. pulled up alongside Gracelyn in a red van and offered her a ride home. Oh, no. I can see where this is going and it is Mm -hmm. not good. We literally have a man with a van. Yep, definitely. Never get in vans Mm-mm. i'm so afraid of vans like as a grown-up i hate how many vans there are over here we live in like the van zone of houston <laughs> and there are so many vans oh my gosh every time i'm out for a walk i'm just like okay there's a murderer there's a murderer there's a murderer i'm convinced they're all like human trafficking even though i know that's not true <laughs> like you're fine you're fine like you're too old for them now like, they'll never take you. You're never too old for a murder van. Yeah. Oh, I guess maybe. I'd be hard to get in there, though. I've been, like, building up a lot of, like, don't get murdered pounds lately during quarantine. So, like, they're going to have a struggle on their Look, hands. I'd feel bad for anybody that tried to murder you. Not, I mean, just because you put up a fight and, like, no one would, would be taking you down without, like, a hell of a struggle, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, nobody would be trying to, to, to hurt you yeah. and coming out unscathed, you know what I mean? I'm a really good scratcher. <laughs> I've loved, I have loved some scars in my time. Yes, indeed. All right. Now, fortunately, when this ride is offered, Graceland knew right away that something was wrong. She knew that strangers were dangerous, and she told the man no and kept walking home. Good for her. I know. Good for her. Like, seriously, she's 12, so she's out here winning at life basically at 12. Yeah. All right. But unfortunately, she didn't know that the man would keep looking for a child to take. And she had no way of knowing that her younger siblings were right in his crosshairs. Oh, no. Yeah, for real. So, Tom Begay Jr. was a newer member of the Navajo Reservation community. His parents were deceased, and he'd been caring for a younger sibling for some time. It's unclear how much time he had been caring for this sibling. Now, one thing that stands out is that he is an adult man. Like, he's 27 at the time this happens. But he does have some mental issues and seems to be slower than his chronological age in terms of, like, mental development. And he does have some mental health issues. And so that might explain why some members of the community had sort of treated these siblings as children when they discovered that they were living alone and that they had grown up in extreme poverty and both had experienced abuse and neglect before their parents had passed. Yeah, that's really sad. Yeah, so at some point, those siblings had been taken in by members of the community. It appears that this happened in 2015 although he would have been 26 at the time so again I'm not 100% sure why he was getting so much care as an adult except for maybe he just was having trouble caring for himself right that would make sense now when Graceland turned down this ride the man drove along the street and started going closer to the bus stop obviously he was hoping to find a child Soon, he spotted Ashlyn and Ian playing in the canal and pulled up beside them and asked them if they wanted a ride. Ashlyn and Ian were young. They're little kids here. They didn't know that he posed any danger. I mean, after all, he was part of their community just like them. And so, without a second thought, they climbed into his van with Ashlyn sitting up front and Ian in the back. No, no. Don't do it. 
that's what they did. Oh, no. When the doors closed, Begay took off down the long desert road. I want to point out here that in one of the articles that I read, it did say that one of the other children had seen Ashlyn waving from the window. I'm not sure if that's true or not because it was a while before anyone reported that they were missing. Not like a super long time before their sister realized they were gone, but she is the one that realized they were gone. So it's unclear exactly if that's true or not. But that is a very eerie feeling, like thinking that someone might have seen her waving from the window from the kidnap van. Yeah, yeah. Definitely. The kids immediately realized they'd made a mistake. That's because Begay turned the van in the opposite direction of their home. They were going deeper into the desert. Ashlyn took Ian's hand to comfort him. After all, she was the elder sibling, so she wanted him to know she was there for him. She was probably feeling really scared, too. Begay drove the children to a remote area in the New Mexico desert, turning off onto a secluded dirt road. He parked the van about six miles south of Shiprock Pinnacle. But unfortunately, Begay didn't take the kids to this sacred rock for a history lesson or a spiritual moment. Instead, he planned something awful. That's so terrible. Yes, and I think it really makes a bigger impact on the community that they he did it so close to a sacred place. Yeah, absolutely. Like when I was, I fell down a rabbit hole of reading about Shiprock Peak and looking at photos and just looking at some of the history. And you really can't even go up to it. Like it's illegal to climb on it because it's sacred to the Navajo. You can't even go, like you can't even drive or walk all the way to it. Like you have to park. There's like, there, there's roads you can go on. And then there's like a fenced in off area where you can't really get that close to it because it's sacred. And so it just is really disturbing, I think, that he chose this spot, especially because, remember, he is a member of the community. So, like, this is would be sacred for him in theory. Yeah, and he's, like, like going to defile it with some kind of terrible Yeah, thing. it's like intentionally driving a child to the church to molest it. Yeah, that's that's really terrible. It doesn't make sense. No, it, it, it doesn't. I mean, it, and Although, I mean, I guess you can't make sense out of something like this. That's true. All right. Now, meanwhile, Graceland arrived home and she's waiting for her siblings. When they didn't return like they usually did, she knew something must be wrong. Now, her father works really hard and she didn't really feel comfortable trying to call him at work. So she decided she would call her mother. But her mother, whose name is Pamela Foster, was living at California at the time. So Foster, the mother, called the Navajo Nation police force to report her children missing after Graceland notified her. But unfortunately, there was a problem. Now, the first of these problems is that the police in the Navajo Nation are understaffed, and at the time, only one officer was working. So the department couldn't deal with her call at the time. They kept putting her on hold. Oh, Jesus. They wouldn't take her report. And so she anxiously waited, hoping that someone would help her. Yeah, and I I get nervous when I, or I get anxious when I get put on hold, you know, like trying to order food or call a cable company. I can't Mm -hmm. imagine how I would feel if I got put on hold while I'm trying to report my kids missing. Exactly. And keep in mind, she's in California. So it's not like she can just be like driving around with her cell phone looking for the kiddos. Like she's in another state at the time. Yeah, she's helpless. basically. Exactly. And also this area, again, um, I didn't mention this before, but it doesn't get great cell service because it's in the desert. And so, again, like, looking for the kids and waiting for the police is not something you can do where, like, you know, where you are driving around. Like, I know, I feel like we've had that depicted in more modern-day kidnapping stories where parents might have hopped in a car and are driving up and down the road while talking to the police. But, like, even if they wanted to do that or could do that, it's just not something that's realistic given the, the cell phone situation. Yeah, definitely. Now, since Ashlyn and Ian are members of the Navajo Nation 
and live on the reservation, the search wasn't quite as simple as it normally would be because the parents, including Foster, who lived in California, couldn't just call the local police station because they don't have jurisdiction on the reservation. Right. Which makes sense. But in this moment, it's a problem. And because of all these issues, finding the children would prove especially difficult. Additionally, at this time, Native American reservations didn't have access to the Amber Alert system. And because of this, no alerts went out about Ashlyn and Ian right away, even though their sister provided a description of the red band involved in their abduction. And normally, that's what would have gotten them this Amber Alert, is that they know these children are in a vehicle, and they have a description of the vehicle, but because of the situation with it not being on the reservation, they didn't get the Amber Alert immediately. Yeah, definitely. That's that's a tough break. Exactly. And, like, the, the family was losing their minds. Like, they were calling everywhere like not just the parents they were just literally the entire family was calling the police and trying to figure out like how can we get this to happen and they're like waiting for it to go out and the amber alert didn't end up going out until 2 30 a.m oh man yes which cost valuable time that ashlyn just didn't have yeah for real now while foster was waiting on the phone trying to report her daughter missing she did the only thing that she thought she could do to help her children which is posting about it on facebook Well, I mean, you can get attention that way. It definitely did help because, again, all those calls that I told you about were coming because of her posting about this on Facebook. And then also, too, like, it got the message out in the community faster, even though the police weren't taking action. Now, while their mother and sister looked for them, Ashlyn and Ian were trapped in a nightmare. When they arrived at the sacred spot, Begay forced Ashlyn to get out of the van, leaving her brother behind. Then... He made the little girl walk off into the desert until they were far enough away that her little brother couldn't see what he was about to do. Once they were alone, Begay sexually assaulted Ashlyn. When he finished, he decided he couldn't just take her home, not after what he did. So he decided to kill Ashlyn and to try to hide his crime. He started strangling her, but also struck her in the face and head with a tire iron. My God, that's awful. Yeah, it's really, really bad. Now, he would later claim that he left her alive and moving in the desert after this attack. Um, It's unclear if this is true, and we will talk about that in a little bit. It's unclear if he's in denial about having murdered her, and for some idiotic reason, he thinks that if he left her alive in the desert and then she died, that it's not murder, even though it's murder that's what murder is like yeah. it's literally murder it's not better i mean in some ways it's worse because yes left that kid exactly out there to suffer, you know? that's part of it too is that obviously some of the community members have been super disturbed by the image of the child just laying there in the in the desert dying but also it creates more heartache for them too because either way possibly getting this amber alert out might have saved ashlyn we don't know But if she were lying in that desert, slowly dying, there's an even greater likelihood that the Amber Alert could have helped because, or just them starting the search earlier because they waited a really long time to start searching for her. And if she had been alive, it is possible they might could have found her in time. That's a good point. Although most people don't think that she was actually alive. Yeah. I mean, that's probably true, but it's hard not to play the what-if game here. It is hard. I think it's always hard to play to not play the what-if game, but I think it makes it harder when he makes statements like that. Yeah. All right. After the attack, Begay walked back to his van. When he got there, he made nine-year-old Ian get out before he drove away. 
leaving the little boy alone in the desert. He left him there? Yes. Now, there are conflicting accounts. He claims that he actually forced the boy to get out because he didn't want to have to deal with it anymore. But there are some conflicting accounts that it's possible that little Ian jumped from the van when he saw the attacker coming back without a sister and ran off on his own. Either way, he left a nine-year-old in the freaking desert. Yeah, that's 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 terrible. It's just terrible. Yeah. So, meanwhile, the search for the kids was finally picking up that evening. Sort of. Finally, Ashlyn and Ian's father, Gary, was able to report the kids missing to the Shiprock Police Department at just before 7 p.m. on the day of the abduction. So, remember, they got off the bus. So, they went from the bus stop and got immediately abducted. Their sister realized pretty close to when they got abducted what happened. But the missing persons report is not able to be taken until 7 p.m., like a little before 7 p.m. All right, so at this point, authorities are finally involved in the search. However, things still took forever to come together. And that's because the various agencies involved struggled to organize and figure out who was in charge. Oh, my God, really? Yes, really, really. And keep in mind, though, it doesn't seem... There's a lot of debate about this. A lot of people really come down on the police departments, which I totally understand because this is a child. Um, But there's conflicting accounts of whose fault this really is because there are jurisdictional problems in that the outside authorities cannot be coming into the reservation and doing things. Like, that's just how it is because otherwise they're infringing on their sovereignty. They're taking their power away, which is not acceptable. Like, they have to be invited in and, and, like, be doing this because they're wanted there. Yeah. But at the same time, like the tribal authorities didn't have the capacity to deal with this. And so it's hard to figure out like exactly who was at fault in this situation. Like there's a problem, but I think part of the issue with solving it is the figuring out how you solve it. Because the answer is not giving the police department like the ability to just go onto the reservation and like take care of business or whatever whatever you want to call it to enforce laws or police them like that's not acceptable that's true but at the same time there needs to be some way for the the reservation police officers to ask for help in a way that they get that help immediately and are able to be you know assisted 100 percent. and so and then also too there was the problem with the amber alert which we will see later there something was done about that okay all right Now, the various agencies at that point are struggling to organize and figure out who is in charge. Meanwhile, the hours of remaining daylight are slowly turning to darkness. Keep in mind, though, that the abduction did occur in May when the sun sets very late in the evening. So this became a point of contention for the parents later because they felt like searchers had more time to search than what was actually allocated on that first day because of the fact that it got you know, it stayed light so late. They could have looked out in the desert for longer. Yeah, absolutely. Now, additionally, members of the Mike family started calling the nearby police in Farmington, New Mexico, at some point during this initial search time. At this point, they were being explained the whole jurisdictional process and that is just further complicating things for the family because they're trying to be like, okay, well, we've talked to everyone. How is this still becoming a problem? Right, yeah. Exactly. Instead of them having the police search immediately, friends, family, and community members just sort of flock out there to try to find Ashlyn. Kind of a grassroots thing. Yeah, sort of a grassroots thing. She definitely had a lot of people who were on her side. It's just unfortunately the authorities weren't able to really give the resources to this that they should have. Yeah. Now, shortly after the children's missing persons report went in, a couple spotted little Ian walking alone down Navajo Route 13. 
Obviously, something was wrong with this picture, so they pulled over to help the little boy. He was scared, so they got him into their car. Well, that's good. Yes. Now, they wanted to call for help, but cell service, again, doesn't work that well in the desert. So, instead, they drove the boy to the Navajo Reservation Police Department to get the help. Little Ian tried his best to tell everyone what happened. He explained that at first he'd run away from this van like either because he'd been let out or because he was afraid he did say he ran towards the lights um, hoping that that would take him closer to the highway fortunately he made the right choice because he had managed to go in the right direction towards the road where he was able to be picked up if he had gone in the wrong direction it's possible he could have also died from exposure into the in the desert. Oh yeah, 100%. He definitely got very lucky. Yes, definitely. However, obviously Ashlyn wasn't so lucky. And at this point, police in all the jurisdictions had no idea where they could find the little girl. Ian, who remember is only nine years old, tried to help his father and the searchers find his sister. He told them everything he remembered about the drive there. Every sight, every sound, every turn he remembered the car taking. He even described little things like seeing cows and things like that. However, he's just a little kid and he was super scared. So his memory isn't perfect. Yeah, I mean, you can't blame him for, for that at all. And I mean, honestly, it's impressive that he did as much as he could. You know? For real. Like, honestly, if someone put, like, even here in the middle of the city, I think I would probably have trouble trying to make my way home or close enough to something to get home. And he managed to survive in the desert, which is just amazing, especially for a child that small. Yeah, 100%. Exactly. And then I also was just like struck by the fact that he did remember a lot considering the trauma. Because I mean, if you're being kidnapped, that's such a traumatic, traumatic incident. I can't imagine like the pressure to like know where you are and just... I feel like everything would look the same. I would get confused really fast. I would. I would definitely do that, yes. So I think it's impressive that he did as much as he did. Absolutely. Now, on the day after the kidnapping, police and community members were all searching for Ashland. Meanwhile, a handful of men from the Navajo Nation Church decided to do a sweat lodge meeting. The purpose of the sweat lodge was to plead for Ashland's safe return. Okay. Guess who attended? No, come on, really? Tom frigging Begay. No way. For reals, he, he totally attended this sweat lodge. Jesus, that's now, so messed up. Yeah, I know, and he like he killed her next to a sacred spot and now is like literally in their sweat lodge as part of their church services, praying basically for her, and he's freaking in there. That's, uh, that's just a wolf in sheep's clothing. That's I terrible. I can't with this. I know, it's like, I feel like, I know he claims... He claims later that he has mental problems that, like, affected his understanding of his actions. But, like, you, how do you not know that any of this is wrong? Like, be serious. Yeah, it, that's hard to imagine that you don't have any idea of what you're doing is yeah. this messed up. And it's not like every single man in the whole community was in the sweat lodge. Like, it was a smallish group, like, less than 10. That's so, crazy. yeah, so it's, like, irrational that he would be in there. Yes, it is. All right, now that day, which was May 4th, 2016, searchers finally found Ashland's body in the desert near the Arizona-New Mexico border. Now, this is actually a day after she disappeared, so they did recover the body fairly quickly. Now, authorities literally arrested Begay during that sweat lodge ceremony for Ashland. Oh, wow. Can you imagine being the other people in that sweat lodge? Yeah, it had to be the weirdest (laughs) moment because I will tell you there's an article in Esquire that did a great job of describing what happened. 
Apparently, the authorities literally surrounded the sweat lodge and demanded that they come out. And the other men are, like, confused, right? Because this had to feel so offensive. I mean, they're in the middle of the sweat lodge. There are officers. I believe the FBI was there based on reports at this point. And then, like, they're coming out wondering what the freaking heck is going on here. Yeah. And they're trying to arrest that guy. Yeah, for real. That's insane. For reals. All right. So he confessed to the police and explained what happened that day. He also explained how Ian got away, saying that he had just demanded the boy get out and then left him to wander in the desert. However, he also claimed that at the time of the crime, he was in a dissociative state. And this would become important later because he does bring up his mental health at a later time. Okay. Okay. Now, I have a problem with some of this because, as you know, I both don't want us to be harping on people who have mental illnesses and are, you know, a victim of their circumstances and their brains because, obviously, mental illness is real and it's very scary. Yes. But I also don't like it when people use mental illness to explain crime. And it's hard for me to get behind someone saying, oh, my bad, like, I wasn't aware that I was kidnapping two children, raping a child, and murdering a child, and then, like, going to the, like, sweat lodge session for her. Like, really? Yeah. I wasn't aware that I was leaving a child in the desert to die. Like, seriously? Yeah, I mean, it's, I'm I'm not a psychiatrist, but it's really hard to imagine that you didn't know what you were doing was wrong in this case. I feel like when it's, like, an attack on a child like this, like a sexual assault on a child, And it's so well thought out, too. Like, he had to approach multiple children to lure someone in there. It's not like they just got in the car and he found them there or some nonsense. Yeah, Graceland probably wasn't the first one he approached. That's a good point. And she may not have been the only one. Like, we only know that he talked to these three kids based on the reports. But it's possible he stopped at other kids in between. Mm -hmm. It's just ridiculous that that he's trying to act like he didn't do anything wrong. That he was like... He really presents it as like he was a victim of circumstances. Like, oh, my life was really hard, and then I had this mental illness, and then I had to do it. Oops, my bad. I didn't realize that it was wrong. Yeah, that's some bullshit. Yeah. Um, I'm not I'm not buying your story, bud. Nope. Now, in August 2017, Begay pleaded guilty to six counts, including first-degree murder, felony murder, kidnapping resulting in death, two counts of sexual assault resulting in death, and kidnapping of a minor. At the sentencing, he didn't even look at Ashlyn's parents Mm. because he's a little bitch. Yes. Also, maybe I shouldn't say that. I'm a professional, (laughs) but the technical term is a little bitch. I think you're right about that. Um, At sentencing, Begay's lawyer said his client was suffering from an untreated mental illness and had dissociated when he killed Ashlyn. Ashland's family and their supporters wore yellow shirts to the sentencing in remembrance of the bright little girl. Yellow was her favorite color. Afterwards, they released balloons in her memory. In their reporting on the incident, the Navajo Hopi observer quoted Ashland's mother as saying, quote, A part of me died with Ashland. In the morning, I listened for her voice and my arms longed to hold her. My angel did not deserve to die the way she did, unquote. Yeah. As part of his plea deal, Begay received a sentence of life in prison without the possibility of parole. After the sentencing, Ashlyn's father, Mike, described the pain her family is experiencing in in her absence. He said there were days when he didn't even want to get out of bed or talk to anyone. According to the Navajo Nation president, the entire tribe was missing the lost little girl. No doubt, I'm sure. I know. It's just horrifying. Like, I know that, like, it's sad that anyone dies, but I feel like it's extra sad when kids die for obvious kid-related reasons. Yeah. 
And I just can't imagine like what these families must go through. Yeah, it, it's it's got to be a terrible just tragedy, you know. I know, and just like and just to know that someone they had let into their community and were like helping and like that participated in some of the stuff the next day had done it. Like I just feel like it's somehow extra worse. Yeah, a hundred percent. All right. Now, in an unexpected turn of events, Begay filed a motion in 2019 requesting that his life sentence be vacated. On what grounds? All right. We're kind of going to get there. He all, he wanted to plead to lesser charges and get a lesser sentence. He claims his rights were violated during questioning because he's allegedly developmentally disabled. He says because of this, he did not understand his rights. Hmm. He says his lawyer didn't, like, fully cope with the fact that he was developmentally disabled. Like, this lawyer knew he had a low IQ. Like, supposedly he tested as having, like, an IQ of around 55, Hmm. which is very low. But at the same time, he confessed and also there's evidence he had the van. It's not they, like, found some random guy. Like, there's a lot pointing at him. Yeah. And he talked about the crime, and he explained a lot of these things that they wouldn't have otherwise known, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So it's confusing that he's coming back and saying that he didn't do it. This part's insane. This is also part of the appeal, so prepare yourself because you're about to be like, oh, my God. Okay. So he doesn't ever say that he didn't do it in the appeal. Like, it's not like he's like, I'm actually innocent and my lawyer's a hoe bag. No, he's just like, no, like, I have these problems and my lawyer didn't get me better help. He also claims that on the day of the murder, he was drunk that day. So okay. it couldn't count as premeditated murder. Wait, what? And yeah, because he was drunk. So he was, like, too drunk to plan it is his argument. Oh, and God. for that reason, he thinks he shouldn't have been convicted of first-degree murder. That was part of the appeal, Aaron. That's a terrible argument. Yeah. So I could maybe understand. I know there's false confessions. I don't think that we have one here, but I'm not, like, you know, the god of confessions. So maybe if he was like, no, like, I was innocent the whole time, but I didn't I hadn't have the capacity to talk to the police, I might be like, oh, like, maybe we should double-check that he did it. But he's like, no, I did it, but, like, I was drunk that day. Really? Yeah, that's really that's, some serious that's what we're going with. I mean, honestly, if I'm the prosecutor, I'm like, not only are we going to keep your life sentence, we're just going to go back and re- retroactively charge you with a DWI and just give yeah, you some extra. Yeah, exactly, because <laughs> you were driving drunk then, buddy. Thanks right. for confessing to more crimes. All right, it's like, yeah, you're going to get the first degree murder and a DWI. All right, also, that's not how any of this works. Like, being drunk doesn't mean that you're not guilty of murder. So, for one, what a piece of shit. Just saying it. That's also the technical term. I was being so professional and I'm losing it. Yep. Secondly, the premeditation occurs when he starts strangling the little girl or getting the tire iron to kill her because he's making the decision to murder her. That's the premeditation part. Yep. It doesn't mean that you set at home and drew a map to murder. You don't have like a home, al- home alone plan to murder someone in order to be premeditation. If you decided to do it and it also he killed her more than one way. So, like, after he started strangling her and it wasn't working, and then he's like, oh, this isn't going so well. I need to get the tie rider and beat her on the head, too. That's, like, extra premeditation. Yep. That's, that's right. the clinical term. Extra premeditation. Yes. Anyway, so he has this appeal, and, like, I wanted to throw up. I did in my mouth a little bit, just being honest. And then a judge came along and heroically denied it in August 2020 on the basis, and get this, this is the reason why it was denied, because he filed it too late. <laughs> <laughs> so apparently okay, he then. filed the appeal in June 2019, but the deadline was October 2018. So yay. 
I guess. Yay, bureaucracy. Like, thank you, red tape, for this, I guess. Right. Um, And again, like, normally, I get it. Some prisoners' rights have been violated. Definitely, there are innocent people in prison. Um, I don't think this is one of them, especially since he didn't say, I didn't do it. He said, I was drunk when I did it, which is, like, further evidence that he did it because he's not, he's, like, doubling down with this plan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Also, it's just hard to feel sorry for him, even though he had a tough past. Like, I get it. He had a rough past. If he had done something else, if he had, like, robbed something or whatever, I would be like, oh, no, or, like, burned down a building. I'd be like, oh, that's really bad, but, like, I get it. But, like, he raped and killed a child. Yeah, that's just, that's really. Yeah, you. Yeah. I mean, seriously, I don't have any, I don't have time for you. Yep. All right. Three years after Ashlyn's abduction and murder, her mother and other members of her family organized a 23-mile run from the bus stop to the area near Shiprock Pinnacle where Ashlyn died. The entire run took five hours, and when they reached the spot, they released balloons in remembrance of Ashlyn. That's really nice. I know it is nice. Like, I mean, I do kind of wish they would stop releasing balloons because it's really bad for the environment. And, like, anytime we're doing a murder case, I feel really uncomfortable when they do the balloons because I don't want to, like, tell a grieving family no balloons for you. So I'm just all like, oh, yay. That's so nice that you're remembering your family with this pollution. (laughs) <laughs> well, like, I, it's like I'm, like, the queen of not polluting. I'm just, I mean, I try really hard, y'all, like, being serious. Like, we recycle. And we also know that recycling is not, like, the fix for everything. So, we try not to use as much. But, like, I do bad stuff. Lately, I've been drinking bottled water. And it's part of my shame. We recycle the bottles. But still, it's part of my shame. <laughs> it's okay. All right. So, I'm, I'm not trying to judge people based on the fact that I'm also shameful. All right. Now, however, this memorial walk run is not where her legacy ends. In the aftermath of the crime, the community questioned how the authorities handled the case because some people do believe that it's possible Ashlyn could have been saved. Now, they wondered why it took so long for police to search for her and why couldn't Ashlyn get her Amber Alert alert right away. Now, the answer to that question resulted in a law created in Ashland's name because the simple fact is that the Native American reservations did not have access to the Amber Alert system. They didn't have the infrastructure to do it. And it's not like local jurisdictions could just issue them because of the complicating jurisdictional factors. Right. So, Congress passed the Ashland Mike Amber Alert in Indian Country Law in 2018. Also, it makes me very uncomfortable that it's called Indian Country, but apparently that's a thing and it's legal and I can't change it. (laughs) This piece of legislation is expanding the Amber Alert system to Native American reservations. And under this law, First Nations have access to grants, training, and support to expand the Amber Alert system in their communities. Um, I believe that they don't have to do it if they don't want to, which is part of it, because that's also part of the problem with addressing issues that led to Ashlyn not getting the help she needed, is that there's not a one-size-fits-all law, and, like, we can offer, like, services and help to these communities, but we can't make them take it, which we shouldn't be able to, obviously. Yeah, and that's fair. I mean, Mm -hmm. being able to... to Extend it to them is the important part, I think. And also there's a funding problem because some um, people who live on the reservation do not like it when the reservations take money from the federal government because the federal government a lot of times puts stipulations on it or tries to, like, control things. Like, for instance, there was one person that had wanted to see this man put to death who was, like, wanting to attach to the legislation that they had to consider or just go ahead and enact the death penalty, which is not part of the Navajo um, laws. 
Right. And so, and they have like different ways of handling crime over there too. And it's not always necessarily like the most, um, I don't know how to describe it. Like to me, some of the things they do might not always be the most effective in helping prevent crime against women and children. Um, but at the same time, they do try to take more holistic approaches, apparently, according to a lot of the reports that I read. So they don't always have the same criminal justice outcomes that like in federal courts are in like state courts that you might have. And so as a result of this, they don't want the federal government trying to control what they do on their land because, well, A, past problems of bullshit, but B, you know, like they have different system that they like essentially. Oh yeah, sure. All right. So, but this, this should be a good turn because it does help them get these things without hopefully there being too many stipulations um, and ideally, the new law will help save other children from Ashland's fate. Now, unfortunately, this new law is not the only thing that changed after Ashland's brutal murder because now parents on the Navajo reservation are afraid to let their children walk home from the bus stop. So it's common for parents to meet their children when they get off the bus to walk them safely home, which I just think is really sad. That is. It's very sad. I mean, I feel like a lot of the community aspect that you have like with kids just being able to play together, be outside. It just slowly erodes because of these types of events. And obviously we know that there's not suddenly more crime. It just gets reported more. But at the same time, I do feel like there's a greater pressure to like make big sweeping changes to protect kids. And it's just awful that like these types of things happen at all. And just like basically take away the ability for all these children to enjoy their childhoods. Because now all those kids that were, you know, growing up and being happy and playing and having fun are going to be living under the shadow of this like monster that exists. Yeah, that's absolutely And that's never going to go away. That's true. All right. So that is the very sad story of Ashlyn Mike. Um, I will point out that her case has been very well covered and partially that's because of this law that came in her name that her parents did fight for. Her mom especially fought very hard for this law to be passed. Um, But I, I think it's very sad that most people who were like, essentially people of color people in marginalized communities do not get the type of coverage that Ashlyn got and I think that needs to change and so I wanted to do her story and hopefully we'll find some more stories like this and I hope that you got something out of it I hope that maybe you just if nothing else just have a knowledge that she existed and that she was a beautiful light of a person and now she's gone yeah absolutely All right. Well, thank you, listeners, for being there and for being wonderful and being great people. And I hope you're having an amazing day and we will see you very, very soon. Now, if you enjoy our podcast, please like us, subscribe, maybe leave us a nice five star view. Um, You can also follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Bad Axe Pod. And we are on Patreon also at Bad Axe Pod. Thank you for listening. And bye-bye. Bye.